Hi, this is John Olson. Thank you for joining us on the National Security This Week podcast. If you like the show, please subscribe so you'll receive a new edition of the podcast every week. Please leave us a review as well and tell others about us. And please contact us with any feedback or opinions you might have by emailing nstw at kymnradio.net. We hope you find the show informative and interesting. Thanks again. National Security This Week, a weekly look at American national security issues. And now, your host, John Olson. Good morning, everyone. It's Wednesday, March 23rd, and you've joined us for National Security This Week. I'm your host, John Olson. We get together here on KYMN Radio every Wednesday at 9 a.m. to discuss national security, and we're joined by guests from our local area, from around Minnesota, and from across the nation to help us explore American national security. Last year, you may recall, we did a couple of shows on transnational organized crime. We mainly looked at that topic from an academic perspective with guests from Oxford University in the United Kingdom and from the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime. We recently had Angela von Tritek, the Assistant Special Agent in Charge, or ASAC, of the Minneapolis-St. Paul District Office with the U.S. Drug Enforcement Administration's Omaha Field Division. During that show, we talked more specifically about how drugs are so deeply embedded in the transnational organized crime world as a primary source of illicit revenue. Today, we're diving into other areas of transnational organized crime to include the area of gangs and what role gangs play in the overall transnational organized crime ecosystem. Our guest today is Dr. James Densley, who serves as a professor and department chair of the School of Law Enforcement and Criminal Justice at Metro State University, which is part of the Minnesota State System. He is also co-founder of the Violence Project Research Center, best known for its Department of Justice-funded Mass Shooter Database. Densley has received global media attention for his work on street gangs, criminal networks, violence, and policing. He's the author or co-author of seven books, including The Violence Project, How to Stop a Mass Shooting Epidemic, which is a finalist for the 2022 Minnesota Book Award, and two brand new books, Robbery in the Illegal Drugs Trade, and another called On Gangs. Densley has published over 50 peer-reviewed articles in leading scientific journals and nearly 100 book chapters, essays, and other works in outlets such as CNN, the Los Angeles Times, USA Today, the Wall Street Journal, and the Washington Post. Dr. James Densley is originally from the United Kingdom and earned his doctorate in sociology from the University of Oxford. Dr. James Densley, welcome to National Security This Week. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So we're up on uh, Zoom this morning. Uh, where are you sitting this morning? Well, I'm sitting at home, and I'm in Arden Hills, Minnesota. So I'm about an hour, I guess, from your studio. Uh, and with the weather today, which is snowing, uh, that was a good choice, I think. <laughs> yeah. uh, I might still be in traffic otherwise. Yeah. So uh, let's get cracking, James. Uh, we've got a lot to cover today. Um, tell us, l let me start with this. Uh, let, tell us about the journey that brought you uh, to the study of gangs. What, what influenced you to pursue this topic of study? Yeah, it's a great question. And it's a question I often get asked because it seems like a strange topic uh, for, you know, this sort of Oxford educated uh, <laughs> guy to be uh, studying. And the, the truth of the matter is that, you know, I grew up, my father was a, a police officer, my sister still is a police officer. And so I guess violent crime was sort of casual dinner conversation. <laughs> um, but I, I'm a sociologist by training. I took some classes in criminology uh, as a student. But the big turning point for me is, um, even though I was educated in the United Kingdom, I met my wife, who's from Minnesota. That's what brought me to the United States. And I lived in New York City for a few years, and I was a middle school special education teacher. Mm. And on my very first day as a school teacher. I had one of my students held up at knife point in the uh, playground um, by rival gang members. He'd been mistaken for being involved in, in a gang and there was an altercation in the playground and that's what kicked things off. And over the course of my time as a school teacher in the New York City public schools, the uh, reality of gangs, but also the mythology of gangs was ever present. So students would talk about gangs. They would, they would talk about fights that had occurred in their community. They'd talk about family members who were involved in drug dealing and involved in crime. 
And it really just piqued my interest in the subject matter. And so from that point on, I decided my kind of research tra uh, trajectory and agenda would, would, would deal with this issue. And, and it has done ever since, really. So the last sort of 15 years have been really immersed in the life of the gang internationally, uh, you know, in Europe, but also in the United States. And could you talk a little bit about uh, your, uh, your doctoral thesis uh, that, that you worked on, maybe a little of the field work? <laughs> I find so, that story very interesting. <laughs> yeah, it's, it is a good story, I think, because so I was teaching in New York City public schools, as I mentioned, and I'd sort of at the time prior to that been thinking about doing my PhD uh, uh, back at Oxford University. And my supervisors there contacted me while I was in New York and said, are you ever going to come back and finish that PhD you kind of abandoned? Um, and and they said, if you do, if you've got a topic that's sort of loosely connected to organized crime, we'd sort of love to have you back because we're launching a new um, extra legal governance institute. That's what it was called. And uh, that's a, a bit of a mouthful, but it really just means the study of organized crime. It was Oxford's fancy way of packaging it. Okay. And um, I turned around and said, well, what about gangs? And they said, yeah, I think that would, that would fit. So when I moved back to the United Kingdom, I spent... Um, two years embedded, really, on the streets of London in these networks with young people who were involved in gangs and, and, and crime. And, you know, getting that access was difficult. So, you know, <laughs> I, I can I, imagine I, I, you know, I had to befriend people working in different uh, community based organizations. I spent a lot of time hanging out in barbershops and churches in schools um, you know, in community settings, trying to get people to vouch for me to get access to these young people to be able to interview them. But over the course of that time, you know, even doing ride alongs with police and any sort of way I could make a connection, I would. And, and really, I spent two years almost, you know, like a full time job um, interviewing young people, spending time on street corners with gang members, seeing what they do and how they do it. And, you know, spending time with their families, seeing them not just involved in the things that you think about gang membership, being tied to crime and other things, but just in their day-to-day -day lives, uh, seeing what they do, um, you know, family barbecues, things like that. And, it was a, a real fascinating insight into the life of, of the gang. And of course, as a PhD student, you have the time to do that type of thing. It's so much more difficult when you've got a full-time teaching job and you've got your own kids and sure. other commitments. But I was young and maybe a little naive and, um, and I just kind of threw myself into it. And for doing that, somehow got a, got a doctorate from Oxford uh, <laughs> along the way. Um, but that was that was really my my first experience of this kind of ethnographic is what we would call it uh, immersion uh, in the gang. And, and, you know, I conducted nearly 200 interviews over that time with gang members, but also with practitioners who were working with young people on the streets. Um, and, and that was uh, that was the, the foundation upon which really my whole career has been built. So let me ask you this, because, uh, you know, you, you did have that experience in New York City. You've been studying gangs uh, while you've been at Metro State here now, and you did your, your doctoral, uh, your dissertation, I should say, not thesis, your dissertation on, uh, on gangs uh, doing that field work in, in London. What is, can you talk a little bit about the differences in cultures between American gangs and gangs in the U.K. as an example? Yeah, that's actually like one of the biggest questions in all of gang research. Well, because, that's why I'm asking it. <laughs> uh, there you go, right? Uh, you've done your homework, John, I can tell. Um, the, um, the reason why it's such a big question is because I think for about 100 years, there's been this assumption that the gang is an American phenomenon. And, and there's some truth to that in as much that the earliest gang studies really come from the United States. You know, some of your listeners may have watched the movie Gangs of New York, mm. um, you know, the Martin Scorsese film, which documents, you know, with reasonable historical accuracy, the immigrant groups that came to New York City in the 1800s and how they formed gangs as a way of protecting themselves, but also shielding themselves from the kind of racism and discrimination that they experienced at that time as a way of getting a leg up into the economy. And so the history of the United States is a history of gangs. Yeah. 
And, and I think in that there's a that's a great a great point to make about that movie is that it's the nativists against the immigrants, and so the gangs form on two different sides based on those two uh, th- those two identifications. Absolutely, you're 100 uh, percent right there, and and I think this is the thing that I always think is fascinating is the gang is a lens to view American history, mm-hmm. so you can look at migration within the United States. Um, coming from the Jim Crow South, moving up to the north to cities like Chicago, where black populations were also uh, faced with racism and discrimination. Mm -hmm. And again, to carve out their own space in society formed gangs. So all that to be said is we know that American history is a history of gangs. But there was always this question around, does that also apply in Europe? Does that also apply in other countries, too? What we have started to see in recent years is global processes, globalization, the Internet, social media, films, television have enabled some of that sort of culture from the U.S. to move across borders. And now we have gangs in Europe that mimic gangs in the United States. Interestingly, though, we also have groups in England, in, in uh, you know, Germany, in France, in the Netherlands that have their own sort of uh, roots, which are very similar to the groups in the United States as well. You know, we find that poverty, disadvantage, marginalization, you know, not feeling connected to the formal economy, um, you know, all these drivers exist universally. Mm-hmm. And so these groups become a way of adapting and coping to those circumstances. So that sounds to me like uh, if government wants to be effective at undermining the existence and success of gangs, you have to address those societal issues that really kind of fester and give rise to gangs. Is that kind of what you're saying? Yeah, I think there's a historically the mistake that's been made is we've always gone with suppression. Mm. So it's the solution to this problem is we can just crack down on the gangs and, you know, we'll cut off the head and and it it will fall and that will be it. Unfortunately, if you don't address the kind of root causes, the structural inequalities that Mm -hmm. create the need for gangs in the first place, then inevitably they're always going to sort of reform, come back, evolve. uh, And there's always going to be those challenges that are present. So, Yes, there's a, absolutely a role for a kind of law enforcement uh, directed uh, response to this. But you've also got that sort of social policy that's necessary as well, because if you don't eradicate those root causes, young people are always going to be looking around and thinking, well, if, if conventional mainstream life isn't for me, then maybe the gang is. The gang is a viable alternative. And until we can you know, crack down on that piece of it, um, there's always going to be that tension there. And, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I think part of it, too, for gang is that there's there's a sense of identity, almost like family that they may not be getting from their own families or from the communities that they're in. They find a sense of belonging, uh, maybe even to something that they feel is greater than themselves. So young people get attracted to that sort of gang culture because they know they will belong and there will be, there will be people there who are always looking out for them, sort of. <laughs> You know, it's the classic, uh, the gang is sort of greater than the sum of its parts. Mm -hmm. So you've got the group processes of the gang, which do provide identity. And it's particularly important to realize that, you know, the vast majority of gang members, there's this sort of myth that you blood in, you blood out. Once you're a gang member, you're always a gang member. You can never get out. Most gang members are only in the gang, you know, a couple of years But it's during usually those adolescent years. These are teenagers. These are young adults. That's the time in life when we're all trying on new identities. We're all trying to figure out where we fit in life. We're all looking for, if we don't have the love and support in our own families, we're looking for surrogate families to provide them for us. And that's we know young people, they spend a lot of time with their peers when they're teenagers. That's the big focus it's you you listen less to your parents and you you're more inclined to follow your uh, the peer pressures if you will all those dynamics are playing out in the gang as well and i think it's a, a recognition that it is around how do i feel like i belong to something bigger than myself mm. and uh, and the gang can provide a little bit of that although 
The sad thing that the research also shows us is even if people are joining for those reasons, they're being sold a bill of goods. Sure. Yeah. Because the gang can never really provide what it claims it's going to provide. It, it, it never really uh, takes it to that next level. And uh, that's why a lot of people become disillusioned with life in the gang. And it's why so many people leave after you know, a very short period of time after experimenting with it. Assuming they uh, aren't carried away in a, in, a, in a coffin, right? Because the gang lifestyle is a little violent. Uh, let, yes. Let, let me ask you this uh, very quickly, though, for our audience. So you're listening to KYMN Radio AM 1080 and FM 95.1. This is National Security This Week, and I'm your host, John Olson. Our guest today is Dr. James Densley, Department Chair for the Law Enforcement and Criminal Justice Program at Metropolitan State University. We're discussing the role of gangs in transnational organized crime syndicates. Uh, so, so, James, as I mentioned in the introduction, you've published a few books on gangs. <laughs> Maybe we should talk a little bit about those uh, before we branch into the roles, uh, talk about the roles gangs play as part of the transnational organized crime system. Uh, can you talk about your, the books that you have published that, are, that, that discuss specifically gangs? Sure. So the first book is called How Gangs Work. And that was really a spin-off of my uh, PhD dissertation, as we, we talked about it. It was the field work that I conducted in London was the, uh, the foundation upon which that book was built. And it was a book that came out at a really interesting time, actually, completely coincidentally. So some of your listeners may remember back in um, sort of 2010, um, that there were a series of riots and urban unrest in Great Britain. Um, and at the time, the British government pinned those riots on gangs. They blamed gangs for the uprising. Um, that turned out to be a false premise, but it, it created this thing where the British government launched a war on gangs. And that's literally the words they used. They borrowed it from the US, they brought it to the UK. <laughs> So I was writing this book, conducting that PhD fieldwork while all this was going on. And so that first book uses that as a lens to a which to sort of really address what's going on really with the gang. How does it function? How does it operate? How does it evolve over time? Who does what? Uh, hence the title, you know, How Gangs Work. Then my later work has been more collaborative. So I've worked with a colleague, uh, who's based in Glasgow, Scotland, by the name of Robert McLean, to look at uh, gang dynamics in, in Scotland. And your listeners may not know that for a long time, Glasgow was the murder capital of Europe. Mm. And Glasgow also has, um, based on uh, deindustrialization and a lot of processes within that uh, area, that they have very high rates of poverty, but also really high rates of drug use and addiction. And the drug economy is, is sort of thriving in that, uh, in that city. So I've worked on a couple of projects with Robert, uh, a couple of books, uh, one called Scotland's Gang Members, another one called Robbery in the Illegal Drugs Trade, which really looks at the gang dynamics in Glasgow uh, and, and the underworld economy. In, in Glasgow, Scotland, which is a, a sort of fascinating uh, place to do that type of work. And then most recently is the book called On Gangs. On Gangs is a collaboration with uh, Scott Decker and David Pyrus, who are two of the leading scholars uh, on gangs in the, in the United States. And we've really just tried to write a comprehensive um, book on anything and everything we know about gangs. And it's, I'll be honest, it's epic. Um, it's a, it's a, it's a 400 page book. Um, it covers everything, joining gangs, leaving gangs, violence in gangs, crime, policing gangs, uh, legislation, what works, what doesn't, the structure of gangs, you name it, it's in there. Uh, we poured our heart and soul. That was, I, I would say that book was our COVID-19 baby. Uh, when we were trapped at home in lockdown, it gave us the opportunity to really um, work on that project. And uh, that was a number of years in the making. And it just came out uh, here in January of this year. And uh, there it is. 
So that sounds like a book that uh, members of our state legislature and our and our uh, leaders in the uh, in law enforcement should pick that thing up and start looking at it because I think I think correct me if I'm wrong but I think most of the violence that's taking place in uh, Minneapolis and over in St. Paul is gang related. Is that is that right? Yes, and this is I think the important thing to recognize about the dynamics of violence is that the recent increases in violence that we've seen not just in the Twin Cities but across the country are usually concentrated in economically disadvantaged and also ethnic minority communities. And secondly, those increases in homicides are a result of murders committed with firearms. Mm -hmm. Gun violence tends to be concentrated among groups of really serious offenders. And the conflicts between those groups of offenders tend to be gang-related. So... A lot of that very serious street violence is rooted in these gang dynamics. And we have to recognize that you've got this skewed dis- distribution of active offenders. These are disproportionately um, gang-involved, gun violence incidents. And so we need to tailor our public safety responses to that. We have to recognize that we need to look at um, a very uh, high rate of offenders that need to be held accountable for Mm -hmm. their actions. And you can actually get a lot of outsized benefits in terms of reducing gun violence by focusing on just a very small number of people, because it's those people who are responsible for for so much of uh, of the challenges that we see. Especially if you can successfully, uh, well, not only arrest them, but successfully prosecute them and, and get them a uh, hard time behind bars for a lengthy sentence. <laughs> get them off the street so they're not committing violent crime anymore. Yes, this is the challenge, right? So, for instance, in Chicago, uh, uh, research has shown that in that city, about 70% of all fatal and non-fatal gunshot in- injuries occurred in a network of individuals who all had prior arrests, and they comprise less than 6% of the city's total population. Yeah. So you've got a very small number of people who are responsible for the vast majority of, of crime. You another one in, there's a study recently in St. Louis that's looked at this, the age-adjusted homicide mortality rate for gang populations was three times greater than the average young black male in the city. Hmm. So this is not about age, it's not about race, it's not about community, it's not about hot spots. It's about hot people. Hmm. It's about the people who embedded in those groups. Those are the ones driving the violence. Those are the ones that need, you know, the the right interventions. Okay. Let's uh, let's so that we just got down very much into the weeds onto the street itself. Let's let's pull back out a bit and uh, take a look at the bigger picture of transnational organized crime. Uh, you, you had mentioned that you'd done your uh, your dissertation at Oxford. Uh, I'm going to bring up one of your advisors, I think, uh, on that research. So longtime listeners from last last year may may recall that we did a, a show on transnational organized crime with Professor Federico Vareza, uh, someone with whom, uh, James, you are very familiar, right? <laughs> Yes, I am. Yeah, I, I in some ways, Federico is one of a handful of people I sort of uh, owe my career to because, uh, you know, he was one of my mentors, one of my supervisors at Oxford, and he's dramatically shaped my thinking uh, on, on a lot of these issues. So he postulated that transnational organized crime is actually organized around three separate activities and that only the enforcement piece uh, of those activities is the real purview of criminal syndicates. Uh, Could you go ahead and and just sort of frame out these three areas very quickly as a reminder for our listeners of what uh, Professor Verese's work entailed? You know, what's interesting is I think a lot of people wrongly assume that organized crime is a matter of structure. And I think they get hung up on the word organized, yeah, right? Yeah. And then they also think of it as being engaged in illicit enterprise. So a kind of profit orientation. The problem is that there are many groups, including street gangs, that can be really structured and they can be really entrepreneurial, but the two don't necessarily make organized crime. So what Federico uh, Varese was arguing is that an organized crime group is a group that attempts to regulate and control the production and distribution of a particular commodity or service unlawfully. 
So to kind of break that down, what we have here is the operative word being regulate and control. So any group can sell drugs, but not any group can be the sole suppliers of drugs in a given domain. Um, not any group aspires to govern the drugs trade. So only when these groups tip into this idea of extra legal governance is when they become organized crime. So in some ways, if you think about this enforcement piece that was mentioned, this governance, that becomes the definition of organized crime. The emphasis here is very much on what is the group doing, not just how is it structured. Although you can make the case that in order to govern effectively and efficiently, structure matters. So one of the things that Federico has done, uh, particularly in the United Kingdom, actually, some more recent research uh, in collaboration with, with some colleagues, he's looked at what, what really makes extra legal governance? You know, how do we define that? And he defines it in these ways. He says it's the ability of a group to generate fear mm. in a community. It's the ability of that group to coerce legal businesses so, so to sort of infiltrate the legal economy and its ability to influence official figures. So this is where we get into that sort of idea around corruption. And this is where the emphasis is on that enforcement. It's the threat of violence or violence itself produces that successful governance uh, in those, in those uh, dynamics. So it's a really interesting way of thinking about what distinguishes a mafia group for instance, from just your regular old gang on a street corner, even though both are involved in violence, the mafia group is the one that's controlling the landscape. And that's what makes it different. Yeah. Uh, Professor Verizzi's ideas, I think, are, are pretty innovative. I, I would call them insightful. Uh, I was really impressed uh, w with the way he framed things up on the show. And you just did a fantastic job of summarizing that. Uh, it's certainly very different than how uh, federal law enforcement or the even the U.S. intelligence community uh, looks at transnational organized crime and who's responsible for what inside those systems. And and I mentioned at the start of the show, we, we had uh, Assistant Special Agent in charge of the DEA's Twin Cities uh, District uh, on the show not long ago, uh, Angela von Tritek. And she talked about, we, we actually had a lengthy conversation about the Mexican drug cartels and uh, Sinaloa being a primary operator up here in the, in the northern part of the country uh, across Minnesota. Uh, and that they are a completely vertic uh, vertically integrated uh, cartel, meaning they control every aspect of that entire drug supply chain from uh, the start of the production through the smuggling across the borders uh, all the way up into the dis dis distribution and then uh, even street sales. I think they control some of that as well. But with that framework in mind, could you talk a little bit about how gangs fit into that greater ecosystem of the criminal syndicates? What is their role in this whole thing? Yeah, so I think some people have argued, and this term has been used in, in the research, that gangs are like the shop floor of the global drug trade. So if you think about that uh, vertical integration that you talked about, the average street gang is much more horizontal, uh, they're more networks, they're flat structures, they kind of bubble up and, uh, you know, it's new kids on the block one week and uh, somebody else the next, you know. So because gangs are young, they're youthful, they often lack the kind of formal rules, regulations, structures that enable them to be really successful in the drug trade. Now, all that being said, though, you think about global drug markets and they are organized in, in, in these sort of um, almost compartmentalized to some degree, which is to say that you have the importers, uh, you have the wholesale distributors, and then you have the retail aspect of the drug distribution uh, networks. And the gangs seem to really fall in line more on the retail side of things. So your average street gang is not involved in importation. They don't have yep. links in the, from the United States to the cartels in Mexico. They're also rarely at the wholesale level. Now, some gangs might evolve to that point, like Federico would have said, that they're governing and they're starting to move up to that level. But at the wholesale level, when you're buying in bulk, 
and you're in a position where you have large quantities of drugs, which you're then able to move to other retailers. Again, it's quite rare for gangs, but some do get there. It, the most of the action for the gang is at the retail level. Mm-hmm. So they're the ones who are in communities directly selling to customers. And historically, this would be done on street corners, often in open air markets. What has changed is with the rise of the internet and social media. Ah, here we go. That, ne- <laughs> that, that now um, drug sales look a little different, that they're perhaps not as public as they were before. Um, instead, transactions are being uh, done on Snapchat or they're being uh, moved on uh, the dark web or they're being done in this way where the online and the offline worlds are heavily intertwined. And so you might have a gang that has a street presence, but its economic a- activities are much more coordinated online. And so this is a new challenge for law enforcement and for uh, practitioners working in this space is, you know, how do you do street outreach work when there's no street? Um, So thinking about the retailing of gangs, uh, of drugs and how gangs work in that space, that's evolved. And it's evolved partly because of technology, uh, particularly the Internet and social media. Uh, so that's where the action is a lot a lot of the times for the gangs it's not in the um in the trafficking business necessarily that that kind of importation level uh, or the bulk buying but it's much more at that street level with the retailing so how how do the gangs you know and you mentioned it's mostly kind of youth gangs for the most part a very flat a horizontal organization how do they acquire the drugs that then they they then sell on the street what kind of markup do they make on what they get from the from the wholesale dealers, so to speak? How, how does that work in the in the I guess the economic part of this ecosystem? This is where the, uh, the 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 coordination of drug dealing comes into play because in order to make larger purchases, you need capital, you need money, yeah. And a young person, by almost definition, tends not to have very much money. So it's pooling together sometimes with your fellow gang members, your colleagues, that you're able to make those sorts of larger transactions. Now, something that we've also observed in Europe, uh, particularly in the Glasgow work that we've been doing, is that those street gangs often have family ties or they have uh, friendship ties to people higher up the food chain in the drug community. So that's where they get access to those wholesalers, where they're able to purchase larger quantities and then flip those to make a profit. But, and this is something that maybe your listeners uh, are familiar with, there was a book that came out about 20 years ago now by the name of uh, Freakonomics. Ah, uh, yeah. And yep. it was, uh, uh, you know, it was co-authored by a journalist, but also by an economist. And there's a chapter in Freakonomics. The title of that chapter is Why Do Drug Dealers Live at Home with Their Moms? (laughs) And uh, your listeners may remember that the drug trade is like a pyramid scheme. It's that the money, you know, flows up and the risk flows down. Yeah, that's true. And what you have here is a situation where the the riches that people are enticed with to go into the drug trade are rarely fulfilled. And so most drug dealers are, are work, you know, they're living hand to mouth. They're not making the kind of Scarface type money that they think they're going to. Um, only those at the, at the real top are able to, to really make a decent living from this. And so just like you see in the regular economy, you know, it's the CEOs that make all the money. Mm-hmm. The people on the shop floor don't. Minimum wages. <laughs> it's the minimum wages. Yeah. And, 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 the, and the drug business kind of operates in a similar way. Um, and, and sadly, here's the other thing. It's those people on the front lines, on the shop floor, the minimum wages like you talked about, who take so many of the risks. Mm-hmm. Because they're the ones who 
are literally handling the drugs and the money. And if it's not a law enforcement intervention that winds them up in prison, it's also rival drug dealers robbing them. It's, you know, drug, the drug market can't be regulated through courts and contracts. No. You know, if, if someone steals my drugs, I don't call the police. Right. So, so you have to enforce it through violence. And so, you know, that book we wrote on titled Robbery in the Illegal Drugs Trade speaks exactly to this idea, which is violence is endemic within the drugs trade because that's the only way you can enforce transactions. You show up on a street corner with the, with the drugs and the money and somebody rips you off, what are you going to do about it? Right. And, and sadly, that's where the violence starts to come into play. So you, you mentioned that some of the more sophisticated gangs, even the youth gangs, are moving in the direction of uh, uh, online sales. So we're taking advantage of modern technology, apps, you know, how do you exchange money through apps and then show up to collect your drugs, that kind of thing. Let, let's talk about a little more about the traditional sense of controlling territory. Uh, distribution end of the drug supply chain, gangs have territory, quote unquote. Uh, that's where a lot of the conflict takes place. You just talked about that. Who is going to control which street corners in which area of the city, most likely? Uh, how do gangs control their territories? How do they replace gang members lost to gang warfare or incarceration or people who finally decide, I've had enough of this, I'm out, uh, I'm going to grow up and get a real job that pays one-tenth of the money? Uh, <laughs> although I suspect those numbers are quite low. How, how does some of that, that work in the in the gang system? So... In the traditional, like, criminological research, there was um, an, an idea which I think is really, really important around uh, opportunity structures. And so just like in the traditional industries, your opportunities to enter something uh, shape your trajectory. The same is true in the illegal sense as well, which is to say that if there's no gang, there's no gang member. And so if a gang is in operation in a given community, it's much more likely that people are going to join it. So what you find is that gangs tend to operate in low-income, marginalized, racialized, excluded communities. And that's where those territories and those territorial borders are drawn often. And, and sometimes just by virtue of being born and living in that space, there's an assumption that you are somehow connected to or affiliated with the gang. And we, mm -hmm. we often think about, instead of it being a gang member as being an in and out dichotomy, you're either a gang member or you're not. It's much more around embeddedness in the gang. How embedded are you in the group? Some people are very deeply embedded. They're involved in all sorts of activities with the gang. And they spend lots of time with the gang. Uh, they identify with the gang. Other people are just sort of there on the periphery. They're there because gang members are in their school. They're in their community. They know them. They hang out with them. You can't avoid them. But they're not really involved in the activities of the gang. And so what this all creates, though, is a ready pool of people who can become more embedded in the group. So as people transition in and out of the group through incarceration, through injury, through death, through aging out because you get fed up with life in the gang, there's another generation waiting in the wings that have grown up around this entire dynamic who just sort of, you know, become the next group. And what we see in the communities where gangs are most prevalent is that this is now an intergenerational problem. Mm. Mm -hmm. you've got grandparents, parents, children, children's children who are the new generations of these groups. And it, and it goes along in those ways. And so it's an interesting dynamic in as much that I think when we think about control of territory, there's an element for some gangs where they genuinely police borders, boundaries, and they are, there are sanctions involved if you cross those boundaries and other things as well. Now, more so because of the rise of the internet and other things, 
that this street has become a little bit more nebulous. It's a bit more transitional. But the embeddedness within the group, just by virtue of being in that community, still exists. Mm. And, and that's really where the, uh, the pushes and the pulls for gang membership come from. Um, it's, it's, it's around community and it's around how many gang members and how many gangs are in it. So, oh, for our audience, you're listening to KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and AM 595.1. Uh, we're broadcasting out of Northfield, Minnesota. This is National Security This Week, and I'm your host, John Olson. Our guest today is uh, Dr. James Densley, Department Chair for the Law Enforcement and Criminal Justice Program at Metropolitan State University. And we're discussing the roles of gangs in transnational organized crime syndicates. Uh, so, so, Dr. Densley, we've been talking about sort of uh, what gangs are, how they're sort of structured, the role they play in the broader transnational organized crime ecosystem. Uh, wh- let, let's drill back down again into the gang themselves. What, what are the most, and let's let's look at it from a societal perspective, uh, not just law enforcement, but society as a whole. What are the most effective tools for for dealing with gangs? Uh, and and I'll, maybe I'll go one step further. H- how should communities respond to gang challenges? Because right now, clearly across the United States, uh, we have some challenges in our in our major urban centers where gang violence is at kind of a it's it's pretty high again. Uh, it tapered off for a good twenty years or more, and it's ratcheted way back up. What are the right solutions uh, to be using right now that are not just law enforcement centric? The uh, the final chapter of the book on gangs that uh, I mentioned earlier that we, we recently put together um, is all around you know what works what doesn't what's promising when it comes to solutions with with gangs and we actually begin that chapter with a little bit of an anecdote which is some of the leading gang scholars um, over the years have often started presentations at conferences or with practitioners. And they've done things like hold up a blank piece of paper and say, written on here is everything that works with dealing with gangs. <laughs> to, and, and it's a little bit facetious to say that. and It's kind of funny to, to joke about that. But the idea being is, number one, we haven't done a great job of evaluating what works. You know, what is the scientific evidence in terms of you know, does this work versus this other thing? And, and, and how did that play out? So some of it was a lack of evidence, but also as well was, you know, if we'd been successful in our endeavors, well, we wouldn't be in the situation that we are in today. I mean, yeah. we've been trying to deal with the gang problem in the United States for the best part of 100 years, and yet we still seem to be having those conversations. Can, now, all that can, being... Can I, can I ask a quick question on that? Just very oh, briefly. Sure. Uh, is that a function of lack of commitment from political leadership uh, to focus on the issue for a sustained period of time? Because you just talked about the fact that gangs have become sort of multi-generational and it's just sort of the next generation steps into the the role the gang plays in, in our uh, transnational organized crime networks that are out there. Is it is it a failure of political leadership to commit the resources uh, year in and year out to focus on it and to address all those other societal challenges that contribute to the rise and sustainment of gang operations. Is that is that kind of the problem? Yes, uh, it is to <laughs> some degree. Um, the, y- 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 yes, I think what we see is that you need that sustained focus. And unfortunately, there is a tendency to always put our Uh, efforts into programs as opposed to sustained policies and and true systemic change. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, programs only get us so far. So you look at a city like Chicago, for instance, where, you know, the best estimates are there are quite literally thousands of people who would identify as being gang members that, Mm -hmm. that are embedded within gangs, thousands And then we have programs like street outreach. Well, if there are thousands of gang members, you're going to need thousands of street outreach workers just to connect with those individuals. It's often to do with scale. It's that we we just don't do things at scale. Um, Okay, you can have a program over here, which has got, you know, six really good outreach workers that are on the streets doing hard work. 
But if there's 10,000 gang members to engage with, I mean, you're never going to take a huge bite out of that problem. So that's that's a big element of this is we, we spend a lot of time on programs, not a lot of time on true sort of overarching policies and practices which are going to get to the root causes of the problem. Mm-hmm. Now, in terms of what truly does work, though, one of the most successful strategies that's been evaluated that is quite promising in this area is something called focused deterrence. And a little bit earlier on the show, we talked about how violence was concentrated among a small number of people, mm-hmm. and those people tended to be embedded within gangs. People who what are sort of predisposed to being violent. Is that sort of... These are, these are prolific offenders. I mean, okay. they, they have been... They have had multiple contacts with the criminal justice system. They, uh, they are the ones who are on the streets pulling the trigger, mm. shooting. These are violent offenders. And so what happens with this focused deterrent strategy? It's a partnership between police and community. And that basically those prolific offenders are given an ultimatum. They're told, you either stop shooting and we'll provide you with social service provision. We'll do everything we can to try and turn your life around. Education, employment, training, tattoo removal, whatever you need will help you. But if you pull the trigger one more time, one more thing happens. What we're going to do is come after the group, almost like a RICO style, where we're going to use uh, every legal mechanism possible to uh, exert upon the group severe consequences. So that would include lengthy prison sentences, um, dismantling the entire group, you know, in some places, in Great Britain, for instance, there are laws called joint enterprise, where if one person is involved, everybody, everybody <laughs> goes to prison. Using those types of you know, pretty draconian uh, interventions, but to send a really clear message that violence won't be tolerated anymore. And what is important for this to work is you need the community on board with police to retell that message out, to say, we, we won't tolerate this anymore. The violence has to stop. Unfortunately, at the time we're in at the moment, there's so much of a breakdown between trust in police from the community mm-hmm. that those types of strategies are struggling because there's not the buy-in that there used to be for those types of interventions, which in some ways is a shame because... I think they get misconstrued as, you know, uh, we're going to sort of infiltrate a a community and we're going to saturate that community and it's going to be heavy enforcement. And instead, it's not. It's data-driven, targeted enforcement of the most prolific offenders. And actually, if you move away from that, that's when things get worse. Yeah. Because if if you move away from the data-driven, targeted enforcement we throw the data out and we just start doing anything that's when everything starts expanding out mm-hmm. and the dragnet approach comes in and that's the stuff that upsets the community because that's when innocent people get affected with this as well so it's it's a real trade-off but that right there is one of the most successful strategies for violence intervention you, you know what that reminds me of frankly uh what you're talking about and and I mean, I hate to frame it this way, but I think I think it really is this. Uh, when we talk about in the military and the intelligence community the idea of counterinsurgency, uh, when you do things with the dragnet approach, you turn the population against the government authority, and they start to harbor the insurgents. And so what you're really talking about is we need to use the data and really target the violent offenders, get them out of the community to get the community a feeling of safety once again so that they can function in their normal lives and that that's really that targeted approach is the function of law enforcement and political leadership to make sure that that's how they're pursuing the the, the gang members in this case not going after people who are guilty by association simply because they are on the periphery of those gangs through no no choice of their own uh, is that is that kind of what i'm hearing you say John, I wish I could uh, bottle up what you just said and, and stick it in my next book because that that is exactly feel what free we're to saying. do so. Uh, it, yeah, no, I, I mean, 
seriously, I think you've articulated exactly the point here. And I don't, I, I don't know if anyone's ever used it in that same terminology. Obviously, that is your expertise and, and uh, your uh, background coming to light there, which is, which is brilliant, I think. This idea of in that insurgency, you end up turning the community against you because you are, you know, you are targeting everyone and anyone in this scattergun approach which only makes people feel like they're being occupied by a, um, you know, by an outside aggressive force. What we're arguing here is for a much more precision-based strategic approach to gang intervention that targets the most prolific offenders. Sad thing about it as well is that communities often know who those individuals are. That's right. Yeah. But they're afraid. They're afraid. When you look at things like clearance rates for homicides, oh, you know, awful. They're awful. Less, you know, less than fifty percent is the national average. You know, so you're looking at these. These are families that are not getting justice. Mm-hmm. And in the times that we're in, the contentious debates around the police and the role of police in society. At the end of the day, it's so important that the police deliver justice to those who have lost loved ones to gun violence and that can only be achieved if the community is on board with with the police tactics and so i think the way you explain that is 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 really spot on um and that's that's where the evidence is pointing us toward as well it's it's we've and we've got to be driven by that science we've got to be driven by the evidence um so that we're making the right decisions so this show, as, as you well know, James, and, and our listeners know, is called National Security This Week. Uh, and, and we've been talking about gangs, right? Gangs, which is at the street level, mostly on the streets of our uh, urban centers all across the country. Uh, so let's, let's bring it back to the national security topic. Can you tell us a little bit about the links that gangs in Minnesota have to broader transnational orga- organized crime networks? Can you talk about how that ecosystem works a little bit? What, what has your research revealed about those linkages and, and and the gang alignment, uh, for instance, uh, maybe maybe some of that is in your book on gangs. I don't know. You, you know, one of the things that really stuck out to me when I first moved to Minnesota, um, which was about 11 or 12 years ago now. Uh, other than uh, the winters? Well, <laughs> well, yes, it was the winters. I was like, what have I done? Uh, was my first response. But um in conversation with law enforcement practitioners, you know, as you'd mentioned on your show, I'm the uh, department chair for the School of Law Enforcement and Criminal Justice at Metro State. And we, we do a lot of work uh, with uh, police departments across the state uh, in research capacity. And we, we were having conversations where people would say that they were going on uh, targeted enforcement uh, operations and they were arresting local Minnesota uh, gang members, but these individuals had some sort of connection all the way through down to the Sinaloa cartel in Hmm. Mexico. Okay. And they'd say that they were finding evidence that there was cartel presence even in, you know, Minnesota. And, what this speaks to is is that earlier point we talked about about you know the gangs almost being the stro- the shop floor of the global drug trade or uh, of being the kind of the local branch, if you will, uh, of these issues. Which is to think about the ways in which you know Minnesota uh, the drugs don't emanate from Minnesota. No, <laughs> right? They come here because it's a target market, and so. If you think about supply chains, which we're now all very versed in because of the pandemic, you know, it was it was the topic of conversation. We couldn't get toilet paper and we couldn't get uh, the products that we wanted. Think about the supply chain for cocaine mm-hmm. um, and think about where that comes from and how many hands touch that en route to the sale of that drug here in Minnesota. And that really is where the role of the gang connects to those transnational organized crime syndicates, which is to say that they might not be clear cut ties where you can draw a straight line to say that this individual is embedded within that organized crime group. But you can 
take that bigger perspective out of it and say, but look at that chain, that supply chain, and then where the gang fits into it. Mm -hmm. And for me, that's what is also fascinating about the gang is to some degree, you've got gangs that just bubble up on street corners and are involved in local rivalries and really have nothing to do with these bigger issues. But then you have others, like we talked about, that aspire to govern, that aspire to take it up that next level. Yeah. And they're the ones that are starting to move more into that wholesale drug distribution world. They're the ones that are making connections at the upper echelons of the organized crime world that, uh, that you know, change the game, basically. Sort of like uh, Hell's Angels starts out as a biker gang that turns into a, a wholesale transnational organized crime network. So, so James, we just have a few minutes left. Uh, I like to give my, my guests an opportunity to sort of uh, finish out any thoughts they have. What else should listeners know about gang culture? Maybe something we haven't talked about so far today in our discussion. I'd say the, uh, the big thrust of my research at the moment is around the role of the gang uh, in uh, social media. Okay. And I, I, I mentioned this a little bit earlier, but I do think this is an important point. When we think about you know, national security issues, global issues, transnational organized crime, and so on and so forth, the most global thing we can think of is the internet. Yeah. And what you see is almost a convergence to some degree of gang structures and gang activities because of the global world that we live in. And so thinking about how gang members use the internet, how they use social media, how social media has changed the dynamics between gangs, you know, posting a rap video online could be the cause for a fight on the street. Mm. Um, you know, posting a photograph of money and drugs on Snapchat and then saying, come get them, <laughs> is, is the way now to advertise your drug dealing business. You, know, you don't have to stand around in the pouring rain or in Minnesota in the snow yeah. uh, dealing drugs on street corners anymore. There's, there's ways to reach people that are different. And so these dynamics, I think, are really, really important. And they pose new challenges for practitioners and professionals that work in the area of gang prevention, intervention and enforcement. Um, and so for me, that is the, the kind of emerging issue that I'm, I'm most sort of interested and passionate about at the moment. Uh, so Dr. James Densley, very briefly, could you remind us of the names of the books that you've uh, authored or co-authored uh, related to gangs? So the most recent is called On Gangs, um, and that's with Temple University Press. Um, there's also a book called Robbery in the Illegal Drugs Trade with Bristol University Press. And then my uh, first book was How Gangs Work, uh, and that was with uh, Palgrave Macmillan. Um, those three, um, in addition to some other ones, uh, are, are really the core of the work that I've been inv involved in in the last few years. And do you have any uh, current research that you're working on that you might want to tell our listeners about? You know, I do, actually. So... Working with Robert McLean, who was the guy in Glasgow, Scotland, I mentioned earlier, um, we are working on a phenomenon known as county lines drug dealing. And this is a very British term because county lines sounds like, you know, drawing lines on a map. Um, but, but actually, it's a reference to the idea that gangs migrate uh, from urban centers to rural areas to distribute drugs. And so... We've done a little bit of work in those areas, and uh, we've got a book in progress at the moment uh, that that documents that in a bit more detail. So, county lines drug dealing. Is, well, that same phenomenon is happening here in Minnesota. Uh, so, uh, you could even uh, tack, tack on an American uh, part of that. So, Dr. Indeed. James Densley, Chair of the uh, School of Law Enforcement and Criminal Justice at Metropolitan State University, thank you so much for joining us today on National Security This Week. It's been my pleasure. Thanks, John, for having me. So that closes this week's edition of National Security This Week. We're on KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1. I'm your host, John Olson. Thank you for joining us today. I look forward to sharing time with you again next Wednesday morning at 9 a.m. Our guest next Wednesday, by the way, will be Lieutenant General Ben Hodges, a former commander of U.S. Army Forces Europe 
and he is going to be talking. We'll we'll be talking with him specifically about where things are at in the in the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Uh, you do you definitely want to listen to that show. So thank you for listening to Nashville this week on KYMN Radio. Have a great finish to your week, everybody. Take care. You've been listening to National Security This Week, a weekly show looking into issues of American national security with the host, John Olson. Listen every Wednesday at 9 a.m. for National Security This Week. Did you hear? Donnie Smith is on. The 33rd annual Donnie Smith Bike Show and Swap Meet, Saturday, March 21st.